Javier needs a hug. He needs. Yeah, he needs. He needs a hug. He needs a lot. You know, like when you when you, I know and I know it's so much deeper than it, but you're like it was a loaf of bread, dude. Like, yeah, come man. On. Hi, this is Jimmy, and you're listening to Stage Door Medium. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 10, Quality versus Quantity. Featuring Broadway's Ben Davis. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another week of Stage Door Medium. I'm your host, Jimmy. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we have a great guest today that I'm, I'm so excited to, to sit down and chat with. Uh, things have been busy here. So if you just watched uh, a couple episodes ago, I was invited to the Hammerstein house. Got to spend the night there, which, which was incredible. There's a couple other opportunities coming up that um, I can't post about yet, but I'm really excited to share with you um, coming up soon. Uh, before I introduce our guest, a really great question that came in, and I'm actually going to ask him for his input on this as well. The question was, are there any facets of the community that you wish you could unsubscribe to or current like aspects of the community that you're a part of that you don't necessarily agree with? Yes. Mediumship is interesting because you have to you have to remember like with with my spouse being a photographer, I almost feel like they're oversaturated in every city that you're a part of, and I I, I almost I I can see how competitive it is for a photographer in in any state you know or any town. For mediums, it's it's also interesting, but it's the opposite. I feel like because there are so few mediums, sometimes the temptation is there to feel like they have to compete with the other mediums for business. I was just having this great talk about this with, with one of my friends. And she was like, you know, you have to think about it. Like you wouldn't want all that business. She's like, you wouldn't want all that work. You won't want to be booked two years out, you know, and be the only person in that area that can do that. So I think that would be one thing that I have to consistently consciously make sure that I'm not subscribing to is I think the competition within it. Um, that would be, I guess, the best way I can answer it. So first up, I can't even tell you how excited I am to have him on here today. Um, it's interesting because sometimes I don't have the privilege of seeing somebody perform necessarily that I've read, but I have. I've, I've seen our guest in The Sound of Music as Captain Von Trapp, which was incredible. And then I can't even read off all the credits because we will be here for like the full hour reading off this, inc <laughs> this incredible resume. But a couple of my favorites that that um, from Broadway credits. So Dear Evan Hansen. Violet with Sutton Foster, A Little Night Music, a couple different productions of Broadway's Les Mis, the, the 2006 revival, in addition to, I believe, the original, right? The turntable one? He's not, yep. so that's a yes. Um, Broadway production of Thoroughly Modern Millie with Sutton Foster. Gosh, countless film and TVs. Uh, just had a recent one with, with Amy Adams. There's so much that that we have to talk about. So please help me in introducing or welcoming Ben Davis to our show today. Hi, Ben. Hello, hello. Good to see you. <laughs> you too. How have you been? I'm doing very well, thank you. Trying to enjoy the summer and, and not wanting to see it go. I know. Are, are, what's the weather like there today? Because we're in a it's bit stunning. of a cold. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's mid-70s and beautiful, the low humidity. Um, it's supposed to get warmer again, thank God, because I don't want this to be our denouement into to fall. Yeah. But 
I know. But yeah, it's beautiful. Ours is about that right now too. It's it's so sunny out today. It's about 72. Uh, I will take this weather, but we are just saying we're, like, we're kind of bored too. Like we want some, we want some hot, hot days yeah. of going to a pool. So we're getting exactly. There. I'm yeah. hopeful. Yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, what since you know, can I ask? I always forget, were you with Dear Evan Hansen pre-shutdown? Like, were you a part of the company? No, I was not. So I had actually, my, the, my last gig that I had was an episode of SVU. I had a recurring on Law & Order SVU. And um, we filmed right up until when they stopped. And it was supposed to, there's supposed to be three more episodes, I think, left in the season. And we ended up being the season finale. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was, the, that was what I was doing when, when COVID hit. And then what have you been up to since? Because I just saw that you did the concert with... Uh, Betsy Wolf. There are a couple, really. I mean, with the reform. Betsy Bryce Pinkham and uh, his wife Scarlett Strawn. And Ted Sperling was our music director. It was, it was fantastic. It was my first live concert uh, in front of live people in like 16 months, and it felt like my first live concert in front of live people in 16 <laughs> months. Um, and it was also it was all Sondheim, so it was just lyrics on lyrics. Uh, it, you know. I love the concert world and I feel like I really am comfortable in there. And I just felt a little uncomfortable, a little bit unsettled. I mean, that's, that's to be expected, I think. And then, um, but what was really great was just getting into a rehearsal room with, you know, four other amazing performers and musicians and artists and, and just listening to other people sing and to feel like I was part of a creative uh, process again was, was really, uh, that's what kind of lifted me. Did they seem nervous too? Like, did you, your your fellow performers did they seem in the same boat as you? Yeah, totally. And it, you know, it, it's it was a one off concert, as a lot of these are, and those those one offs are. There's a lot of like pressure and, and stress on them, and especially when you get to Sondheim, which has a lot of lyrics, and there's no do over, and uh, so you you put a, a probably undue pressure on yourself to to make it perfect that time. Sure. Uh, so yeah, it's stressful. But then you know you're all in the same boat and you you have this thing i heard a, a, a gal that i sang with one time she said every time i go into one of these concerts i'm like what the hell am i doing doing this this does not bring me joy <laughs> and then afterwards you're like oh my god this is amazing that was fantastic i'm so glad i did that <laughs> so it, it's kind of this roller coaster of emotions that you go through with those how was the audience i mean did they seem apprehensive were they were they eating it up they were eating it up. I think everybody's so glad to have uh, people in front of them performing it to feel. I mean, I know I am. I've been going to as much live. I go every week. I go see live music uh, be, because it just it feeds me. And I think that we we as a people realize throughout this whole pandemic that that we need that communion with other people. It was interesting when I was in New York a couple of weeks ago. I had I had stopped at um, Speakeasy Times Square at at Bond Forty Five. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It was our, you know, that was our first performance that that we a space where we had been back, you know, you know, post pandemic, I guess, or post pandemic still feels weird to say, but it was incredible, you know, to feel that electric energy that people have been so hungry for, and again, that idea of community, um, I yes. think, I think, rang truer than I think anything, you know, just the yeah, same. Right? So. Oh, and speaking of Sondheim, it was it was so neat. Have you been to Highland Farm in Pennsylvania or no? No, you know what? I did a thing. This was like three or four years ago, a thing for the Rogers and Hammerstein Foundation or no, no, no. They're building a museum down there. Or maybe it's done. And uh, they said, oh, we would love to have you down because you sang for us. Come down and spend a weekend. And I just never did it. So I really want to go down and, and stay there. 
Yeah, and Sondheim, Sondheim stayed there because, so when his parents went through a divorce, he had stayed, he moved to a farm in Doylestown. It was like right down the road from the Hammerstein kids. So he became friends with them, but yeah. also being acutely aware of, of who their father is. And so we stayed in his room and, uh, you know, it was, it was crazy. I guess he was there all the time that the, the Hammersteins were like, here, just take this room. And, and, and it was so neat hearing about like, uh, his just the stories about Sondheim and um I guess Sondheim had had attended therapy and ha uh, Hammerstein I don't know if he didn't believe in therapy or he had never been to a therapist but he was very curious like I guess they said a lot of the the ideas and things like that that Sondheim had gotten from therapy he would incorporate into his lyrics and huh. Hammerstein was very I guess curious like he would ask him the minute he got out of therapy like well what did you talk about and I just oh, thought it was fascinating to hear those little yeah so well, I guess going backward, did you, did you always have the bug? Did you always know that you wanted to be a performer or was there something else that intrigued you? No, um, I grew up, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I was, I was a jock basically. Um, and I thought I wanted to be an architect. I was doing, I was taking architect classes in high school. We had a, like a drafting program there. So I was doing that. Um, <laughs> and then my parents took me up to a, a university in, in university in Indiana that has a really great architecture program, Ball State. And I went and, and like had a docent show me around and I realized how much work those, those architecture <laughs> students have to go through to get a degree. And I was like, oh yeah, maybe this isn't for me. And there's so much math involved in it. And, and uh, so then my junior year in high school, I quit basketball. I was a football basketball track. And uh, I quit basketball my sophomore year because I got upset at the coach because I've, I've always had a little bit of a problem with authority. And, uh, and so my mom got me to audition for the school musical my junior year, just kind of out of the blue. I had never sung in choir or anything like that. And I uh, got cast as the most non-dancing riff in West Side Story history. And uh, <laughs> from there, from there on, I did a show. I think I did that summer. I did a show at Civic Theater in Indianapolis. And then, oh God, I, I'm so glad I don't have pictures of this. My senior year, we did The King and I in Indianapolis, Indiana, 1993. Let's, 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 sure. let's set, set the context. So <laughs> I played Lunta. So somewhere out there, there are pictures of me horribly spray painted a different, color like an oompa loompa orange with black hair and it was the most awful cultural now looking back on it sure we did it with complete sincerity and complete you know we were just trying to do it but oh my god what were we we weren't we weren't thinking anything wrong and nobody made fun of anything it was just so that was my my second show ever was playing Lunata and the king and <laughs> I graduated in 2005 from high school. And yes, I will say we, we started, we had, I mean, there was a neighboring school, a very rural school that had done a production of Aida. And I think at this point we were like, okay, th this should not be done in, in this Farmville town. Yeah. And Total Tan then had sponsored the school and they gave oh, no. all the kids unlimited, like for one month tanning. And we knew, oh, I mean, my, my office mate, my coworker was in a production of the King and I in high school in the eighties. And she said the same thing. She said, we did it with the utmost sincerity. She yeah. goes, it wasn't something that was on our, thankfully now it is, but she says it wasn't there. You, you look at it through intention. Like what is the intention of this? And it, it was just a sincere, genuine intent to, to do this show in the most beautiful and truthful way that you could as a high school student. And, sure. you know, I, I think the reason we did it is because we were able to get the costumes from the Civic Theater. So it was just easy for them to, 
to, to kind of use those costumes, blend the sets and everything. So uh, anyways, yeah, I, yeah, it was problematic now. Um, and so that was kind of my entree into musical theater. And, and it, was, it was incredible two ways because all of my sports friends were incredibly supportive of me, of me from day one. And they still are, they still come. I was just back in Indianapolis last, this, the, the beginning of the summer and went over to friends. And I've, I was with friends that I've been friends with for 40 years, uh, 35 years, at the least 35 years, all of them. So that's, that's incredible. And they have supported me everywhere. They come to see my shows in New York. They will travel anywhere to see me when I'm in, Indian, in Indianapolis with the show, we always get together. Um, so that was, that was amazing. And then I also made all these new friends in the theater world uh, who were quirky and fun and completely different than, than these other people and incredibly accepting. And I think that's, if we're gonna talk about the, what I would unsubscribe to in our, in our yes. society, our community, then I would say that that is something that I absolutely want to carry forward. The acceptance, the, the yeah. uh, you know, we all come into this profession and to this community with quirks and uh, foibles and, and strengths and weaknesses and stuff. And, you know, obviously it's like anything else, those aren't always celebrated, but I think to a great degree, those are uh, welcomed. In athletics, there's a quantifiable measurement of success or especially against peers or, or, or whatever. And, um, you know, this industry is so subjective and, and, and how you, how you individually quantify success is, uh, different. And a lot of times you quantify the success in comparison to your peers, which I don't, uh, but, but again, because it's so subjective, that's, that's a, it's an erroneous way to, 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 uh, mark your success. That's um, yeah, uh, because there's just no, you you have no reason. Whereas in sports, I ran faster, high jumps higher than this guy. And so, yes, I can say that I'm better than this guy. Yeah, That's just what it is. If I consistently am beating this guy by a mark, uh, a legit mark, then I'm better than this guy. But just because I've gotten a role uh, doesn't mean at all that I'm better than anybody. Um, or that if somebody got, if somebody else got a role that I didn't get, that doesn't mean that they're better than me. Uh, but we will easily convince ourselves both ways that we got that role. So we're better than this person or they got that role. So we suck and they're better than me. And I'm never going to amount to anything. Um, that's the hard. same works in mediumship. I mean, you, you said it best. I mean, mediumship is really not quantifiable. So there are yes. days where I think you know, academically, I was, I was, I did very well in school. So that, that part still resonates with me. So I think sometimes I will bring in that scientific quantifiable, Ooh, well, I got 88% of, you know, I, and you can't quantify it, but I will try no. to. Sure. Uh, sure. Where did you go to school? I went to Butler university, which is a small private school in Indianapolis. I studied voice. Um, Unlike you, I was not the most academic of people. Uh, if I liked something, I would really try. Uh, I didn't like a whole lot. I didn't like, I, again, this problem with authority. I don't like to be told to jump through hoops. Unless it's work, that's fine. I'm being paid to do that. You can do that. But if I'm paying, I, was, I just went back to school last semester, uh, back to college. And uh, again, I was like, there. I was paying them and they're telling me all these hoops to jump through. And I was like, no, this does not work that way. <laughs> so anyways, that's, um, so I ended up leaving school after two years. 
because I was just wasting a lot of my parents' money. And um, ended up, I was like, I'm in, I'm in Indianapolis. What, how am I going to get to Broadway? So I ended up, I was like, forget this. Uh, I went to work for Prudential Securities as a uh, broker's assistant. And I had kind of given it up, even though I had just been offered uh, Rolf in The Sound of Music at Beef and Boards Dinner Theater in Indianapolis. Uh, but I turned it down because I was kind of like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay away from this. And uh, the branch manager there uh, was worried because he saw that I was an actor. He's like, how do I know you're not going to leave us to go do some production somewhere? I said, well, Jim, Mr. Longstrap, the only thing you'll have to worry about is if I ever get a Broadway show. Otherwise, I'm not leaving. And that doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Cut to a year later, and uh, my mom had gotten me the Chicago Performing Arts paper that had all the listing of the auditions. Wow. So I uh, went up there for Phantom of the Opera. I got called back for Raul. I was 21 at the time. I called back for Raul, uh, then didn't hear anything. Then six weeks later, they called and they said it was Johnson Liff, uh, the casting agent at the time. They did Les Mis, Saigon, uh, Phantom. And they said, we're coming back to Chicago with Les Mis. We'd love to see you. I went up there to Chicago again from Indy. It's like two and a half hour, three hour drive. Got called back for Andre Ross. They said, we'd like to fly you out to New York for another audition. My second time in New York. Um, I know it's crazy. It's crazy. I flew out. I came back. I didn't hear anything. One day I'm sitting in the office a couple of weeks later and I get a phone call and they said, Ben, we didn't test to see how high you can sing. Um, we need to put you on the phone. This is 1997. So pre FaceTime, pre anything. We need to put you on the phone with our music director in New York. Uh, and he's going to play through the passage and you, you can speak your phone, sing on, sing the, the passage. And uh, it was this for the character of Fuyi, who's like uh, Ange Ross study. And he sings a high A on top of the barricade. He has this big solo high A. I never had a high A in my life, ever, ever, ever. Uh, so I go, oh, shit. So I ran home and I was like um, trying to hit a high A. The good thing is there was no face so that I could make whatever face I could squeeze. I could do whatever I needed to do. <laughs> Uh, Dale Reeling, the music director in Les Mis, calls me from the Imperial at half hour. He plays through the phrase twice. I hit it twice. No idea how. Uh, I get the call the next day. We'd like you to join the national tour of Les Mis in two weeks. So it all just kind of, and so I had to go into the branch manager and say, well, here's the deal. <laughs> I got a national tour. So here's my two week notice. Uh, so that, that was 1997. And then did that, did they transfer you to that Broadway production then? Yeah, then I opened on Broadway as Angeros in uh, 2001, the day before the attack, September 10th, 2001. Wow. Yeah. So uh, that, it was crazy. Crazy, crazy. And then I played Javert in 2006. So I, I'd gone off to do other things from 2001 to 2006, but then came back and played Javert. Well, I'd love to ask you then, because this was a question that came in for both of us. So we're, we're asked, have you ever considered other careers? If so, what made you stay within your current one? So now you're going back to school. What are, can I ask? I know you told me during our reading, mm -hmm. what are you going for again? Just communications. Cause I, I was trying to think, okay, what would I like to do that I could use some of the tools that I've acquired doing this? And what I came to was like a, uh, like a media facing job for a, a creative company like Google or Apple or something like that, where. Uh, I'm, I'm addressing reporters or I'm, I'm on camera or I'm, I'm doing, you know, kind of public relations in that, in that capacity. Um, so that's kind of what I've, I've thought about is, is putting forth a company message in, in a media facing job. Has this, is this something that you'd considered even leading up to the pandemic, like a couple of years before, like, or is no. this newer? 
Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that this is obviously caused us all to, to, to think about what else we could do. And, and, um, you know, I think like a lot of people, I thought about real estate just because it, it's, it's, it's an easy transition as far as, um, but then I was like, okay, well, let's, let's think deeper and even and see what else, what else might be there that you, you would be interested in. Um, the, 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 I was just talking actually with Tony Esbeck today and we were talking about theater and how it's still scary now to think about if it's going to really come back and how are we going to live? Coronavirus is here to stay. I mean, COVID is here to stay. So how do we live with this and how does theater exist within this world? And, and is there a future for us? And then it's a, it's a very kind of unsettling time as things get starting, start to come back, it's unsettling because you, you, you're not quite on solid ground yet. Um, so I was just trying to think of, of the things that I could do and I'm 46 years old and I didn't want to have to kind of think about, you know, the only thing that I thought about doing after I stopped performing on, on stage at least is maybe to go and be an artistic director in a theater because I feel like I could raise money well and I could do those type of things. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so yeah, this is really, caused me to think about what else could make me happy. I've been afforded the opportunity to have a career that I truly and deeply love and am passionate about for 25 years now. And uh, I don't want that to end just because maybe this isn't going to be as viable uh, as it was in the past. So I need to figure out something else that's going to fulfill me. I was just listening to this podcast with Kiela Settle, and she was talking about how the pandemic proved to also be like an ego check as well. Jesus oh, Christ. Yeah. yeah I mean, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you all mm -hmm. off if you want to go deeper with that. But I mean, you and I talked about that this year has been, for me personally, a year, a 16 months of mostly a year of stripping away everything that distracted uh, from having to do any real work on yourself. It was a year of taking who you thought you were and the identity you had formed based on what you do for a living and, and the distraction of work. The work is in, in itself a distraction. Even though you love it and everything, it can uh, keep you from having to, again, do the work that you need to do. And I went through a series of, of events, uh, a, a breakup and kind of hitting rock bottom last summer and thinking I was coming out of that. And then a breakup happening, a, a solid breakup happening. And it, um, and then that mixed in with the lack of work, which was, had become my identity, which I never wanted it to be. I have a lot of friends outside of the industry and I've always kept it that way because I wanted to, to have an identity outside of the industry and a curiosity outside of the industry. But still, I realized that, no, you had used your work and used your, as, a, as an ego built, to build up these false structures that would support this person that you were because you didn't wanna to have to do the real work and you didn't wanna to have to really face a lot of the things that you kept at bay for years and years. That's exactly what Kiela Settle was talking about too with the ego check. She was like, there are so many things that I've, I've been, she, she had mentioned like working on healing herself since, since this pandemic hit. It's the stripping yeah. away. We, we all build up such, such huge structures to keep us afloat. And some of those are very necessary, but there comes a time where you're going to have to deal with that. Yeah. And, and you have to tear down those structures one by one uh, or they get knocked out from underneath you. And then you have to, it's, it's, 
I think we've all found, and I and this I felt this acutely, a very laid bare, um, and vulnerable and fragile and scary uh, sense of oh shit, I'm sitting with myself right now, and all I have is myself, and I'm not quite liking who that is. So how do we how do we change that? When I was in college, I had gone through. I was I was dating somebody. It was pretty serious. We're together for a couple of years, and excuse me, post. Post undergrad, I was already teaching professionally though. And that year there were like, I want to say 50 ELA teachers that were cut because they lost funding for like title one, basically for additional like ELA support for ESL students. So long story yeah. short, they cut these 50 teachers. The chain effect happened with seniority. I was bumped within two weeks after getting bumped, I got dumped. So it's like the bumped and dumped yeah. and, um, you know, that it, it hits you. I mean, you're like, you're just, you're like, oh, all my friends are teachers. I can't really call any of them right now because they're working. And you really have to, like you said, you sit with yourself and you're like, oh, I don't really know if I'm liking the, the person that I am right now. And, and granted, it was so much of it was circumstantial, but sure. another great question, because you've done so many projects. Can you like offer, somebody had asked about this, what's the secret to staying working consistently? Man, I don't know. I think a lot of it is luck. I, I really do. I, and that, that's not, that sounds, that's not me blowing that question off at all. I mean, you got to do the work and you got to, there's so many things that I, I mean, it, it, again, it's easier for me to think of the things that I haven't done that I should have done that would have maybe kept me going at a, at a, at a higher rate or at a, at a greater, greater uh, climb. Um, I think it's like just doing the work you need to do and try to be good to people. And I failed at that because of places I've been in life. Uh, and, but, but on the whole, just try to be a good colleague and try to, to always bring out the best in, in the people that you're working with. Uh, I, you know, I, I look at, at people speaking of, of this, um, my ex and I were invited. I was good friends with Marin and good friends with Jason Danieli. So Marin Maisie and Jason Danieli. And when Marin passed, they had a friends and family gathering over at the, uh, the uh, over on the east side and people got up and spoke about Marin. And um, these are the, the luminaries of our industry. You know, every, every big name, grand dame and grand, you know, stud that you can think of in musical theater was there. And to a person they got up and all they talked about was how Marin made them feel. And I think that this is what, this is applicable in life and also in our profession. Um, Make people feel good about themselves. Uh, when they leave you, make sure that they leave feeling better about themselves. You know what I mean? Uh, and that will stay with them. And that's the kind of legacy you always want to leave. And that will create work for you, I think. Um, and I failed at that miserably. And, and that's what I think that that's one of the things that I came away with was, oh man, I, that's, that's what I want to be. And that's what I want to do. That's the kind of person that I want to be. That's the kind of performer that I wanted to be as well. Um, so that would be the biggest thing I would say is to, to inspire people just through you being curious about them and being interested in them. Did I ever tell you, I don't know if I did, and I, I don't want to say for who, but did I ever tell you Marin came through during a reading? No. She, she came through for somebody and I was like, it was so interesting. She did not give her first name. She just said, mm -hmm. please tell her that M is here. And then she flashed me a sunflower. So because oh I, I think this was a lesson for me though, because some of the folks that I'm reading now, 
other like bigger names are coming through. And I think if I were to have seen her, I would have dismissed it because I would have went, mm, this might be my own subconscious coming into play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just went, do you understand Sun Sunflower and M? And you know, the, the client was like started tearing up and they're like, oh, yeah. uh, I'm almost tearing up. Like this makes me like get emotional. Well, she literally said she goes, when you sent me that welcome video about how to prepare, she said, I asked her to come through for today. Oh. I was like, what? So she and I, it's interesting. I didn't know that these two people had worked together. And, and Marin had some very specific stories about um a couch that they had shared backstage. I want to say at City Center, but she had some really it was interesting, like being in, in her presence, it wasn't like, a, this is what I want to relay to you. It was like, I want to just check in on you. Like, how are you? It was so that's generous. And that's Marin. So so, and it doesn't surprise me that she came through because she is one of those people that in life was such a presence. And even I told, I've told Jason this a lot. I'll go back and I'll listen to her singing or I'll watch videos. And I'm like, there's no way she's gone. There's just, there's absolutely no way that somebody with that much life force and energy uh, and, and a voice, and I don't mean a voice, I mean a voice, uh, something to say and a, a, a presence and everything can, can be a way. There's just not, there's yeah. not possible. Well, I guess one final topic, and then I'd love to talk to you about your reading, whatever you feel comfortable yeah. sharing. Somebody yeah. else had asked, releasing, if we could talk about how do we release ourselves of expectation or disappointment? So have you ever had any performances where, where you, you're like, shit, I feel like I let the cast down tonight or anything like that, that, and how you release yourself from, I guess, from that nightly game. nightly. I feel that way. I feel like that way about my life on a nightly basis. I look back on the day and I'm like, I really let myself down or I let, um, I think it's accepting more than release it's releasing. It's accepting. Sure. Right. If you release anything, you release the, the notion of, perfection or you release the notion that you're going to get everything right uh and if you did that probably means you're not looking hard enough or you're being you maybe too easy on yourself but i think it's the acceptance sure. especially in theater because it's such a it's such an ephemeral thing and, and you'll have a chance the next day so i i hope that i hope the day that you you walk away from a performance you're like yeah man that was it killed that couldn't improve on that that's that's the that's the ultimate performance. Um, you probably need to leave that show, if not the whole entire business, because I don't know that you're going to grow much more from that. Sure. So I think it's I think it's the acceptance of imperfection as as a means of growth that you uh, that allows you to deal with that. With Dear Evan Hansen, did you ever find that if you were not emotionally prepared to go on for Larry, did you find that like if I'm not saying that it happened, but if it did. Do you find that if you don't come in fully ready, will you notice other performance, other performances within the company being off because you're not fueling them? Or can they go into like a turbo boost and be like, all right, I'm not getting it from you today, but I'm going to pull from something and still do it. I think with any performance and, and the, this is why you want to work with people that are better than you always. You never want to be the, the best one in a room, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because those people will pick up the ball. It's like, it's like a team. It's a team sport. If somebody's dropping the ball and you know that they're reliable usually, but they're just having whatever it is, um, your, your need to connect with them more kicks in. You know what I mean? Your, your need as, a, as, as, as that character to, to, to connect to that person uh, becomes more of an imperative and I think can actually fuel a performance. And 
Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's what you do. You're a teammate. You pick the ball up and you 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 uh, toss it back to them and give them another chance. And usually the the caliber of the people that we get to work with, um, they may not catch it on the first time, maybe even second time. But by the third time, they're going to catch the ball and and run. And that's when actually exciting things can happen too. Well, I guess final topic. I'd love to talk with you about your your reading. So this was a, a while ago, right? This was yeah, well, it was. May? Spring. May? Definitely spring. Yeah. Because I remember then after I started following you and I saw we were going to like the same hiking spots. Yeah, um, we were. You brought your um you brought Dottie. Dottie and, the uh, drone. Yes. Um which by the way, no one warned me. And I, I it's so hard to tell because when I went to Overlook, no one had really like I, I saw that Ooh. it was pretty mod. Yeah, yeah, no fucking joke because it's a fucking beast. I, I was like no stopping clue. midway going. <laughs> oh, I, and you're in killer shape. I have gained oh. like 20 pounds since the pandemic. And here I am thinking, I mean, we have, we have a, we have the score, we have a gorge right near us and, and it's, but it, you know, it's more like hairpin turns where you can really, yeah. no one had warned me that overlook was like this. So folks, yeah. you can actually see this and you're not listening. This is like overlook the entire time. And then uh, it, it maybe occasionally stops for like a foot and then you just keep going up and it stops. And then you, and finally, I mean, I, I kept going like, oh my gosh, like, where's, where's the rubble? You know, the, the ruin. Right. I was, yeah, I was yeah, the hotel. finally, when you got to the top, like I literally cried and I was like, I don't know if this is from the beauty or just from like sheer exhaustion of like, yeah. I had no clue that this was going to like bitch slap me like the entire Ooh. two hours. So <laughs> did you go to the fire station? Did you go to the, the, the fire tower up, up above that? Did you? I went up there. I did, and it, it was a really windy day, and I so I made my way up to there, and it got real scary real quick because the wind was kind of moving in and everything. So, and you can see straight. <laughs> I had to, I got down. I was I, I went down on that. So yeah, anything that you feel comfortable sharing about about our time together? With your, with your I think it was, and I mean to give a little backstory. I lost my dad eight years ago in 2013, uh, and he was my best friend. He was everything to me, and he uh, he died after a five month. Uh, ordeal with with esophageal cancer and so it was just and I think especially because of the year that I've had and everything uh he was my anchor and he was my uh the person I could always go to and not having him in the physical sense uh, has been a real struggle so I think just feeling a connection with him and feeling um like he was in the room or feeling like he was thinking of thinking of me um, was a, a huge, huge relief and uh, made me feel very comforted. Your dad's energy was, was fun. I, I could definitely now, now that I'm talking with you and you're talking about this like problem with authority and whatnot, I'm like, Oh, I'm like, yeah, now I see it. Now yeah. I see that. Now I see the family resemblance. And uh, yeah. I know there was this one moment when I, when I, when I read you that, I didn't know what he was talking about because I brought it up to you and you're like, no. And then I'm like, he's, he's forcing this. I'm like, something about a beach trip. Did you guys do a trip to the beach as a family? And you were like, yeah, no. And you know, and, and then you had mentioned that, um, was it, was it the night before it was like the night before he passed away? Yeah. We would, so when he got done with treatment, he wanted to go to Florida and we realized we found out later that he had told his best friend that he wanted to go there so he wouldn't die at home. But, um, we went down there and we sat on the beach and I had to help my dad walk to the beach at this time. He's jaundiced, he couldn't, 
and he was a very proud guy. He was a jock and yeah, I knew that he, he didn't like people seeing him that week and, sure. and everything, but he sat on the beach and me and my brother and his, uh, now wife, uh, played paddle ball on the beach and everything. And my mom told me that dad looked over and said, I've been dreaming about this. And, um, so yeah, we start crying. I'm so um, sorry. No, it's okay. It's good. Um, so that was, uh, and that was the, the day before, the day before, the two days before he died. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was a, a seminal moment. And I mean, that Boca Grande, Florida will always be a place. I, the first two years that after he passed, I was down there uh, on New Year's uh, every, and I went and sat on the same beach and just kind of thought about him and, and uh, yeah. So that's why he brought that up because I'm like, this yeah. feels very, he would not let it go. I was like, this feels so important to him that he's bringing this up. Cause there's times where like, when I'll say things and clients don't connect, I will always write it down. But if it feels like it's like being pulled out, I'm like, nope, I, I can't. There's, and I always feel bad sometimes, you know, cause you're in a reading, you're dealing with, with heavier topics of, of death and loss. And I, I feel bad to sometimes be like, I'm sorry, if two minutes later, I'm like, I got to go back to this topic. Do you understand this? And yeah. Um, where did the pizza thing come about? Because I remember he talked about Italian food or something like yeah, that. Yeah. So did he have cookathons or did you like, what's this pizza thing? No, he, my dad was a pizza hound. Like the dude, we, he come here and it was funny because a friend of ours just posted, a friend of mine posted a uh, picture of them at my dad's favorite pizza place, which is, which is John's on Bleecker. And if we were, if they were coming, if they came to town, I used to live in the West Village. If they came to town for seven days, we would eat there at least three days of the week. Pizza is just, I mean, and I follow, I'm a chip off the old block that way. So um, what I started doing is, is on his uh, birthday, which is February 4th, which is also World Cancer Day. I started uh, having like this pizza for Howie or pizza for Howard thing. And uh, if people tagged themselves eating a slice of pizza for my dad, I would donate a dollar to the American Cancer Society. And uh, so it was just a fun way to kind of memorialize dad and celebrate dad. And, uh, you know, we raised a couple thousand dollars here and there because I had friends that would match. Um, yeah. So uh, it was just a cool way to kind of celebrate him. I'm with your dad on pizza. I view every pizza place that I have not eaten at as just like a future adventure. Like right. this week I had, I had way too much pizza. I saw a couple different friends and then we went to a drive-in to go see the breakfast club and they had different pizzas. And I'm like, I should be bringing uh. something healthier, but I'm like, oh, I've, I've never eaten from this one. I'm like, it's a cultural experience. I'm like, I, I need to, uh, I'd be rude if I didn't try it. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice that you can still hear your dad give you or something that still rings true from him? That's so easy. Um, and I said this in his, in his uh, eulogy that I gave. And it's something that I always say to myself. My dad would always just say, whenever I would call freaked out about anything, he would always just say, it's going to be all right. I have all the faith in you in the world. And it was in, in my eulogy, I say that it wasn't like some hyperbolic statement where he was trying to get me to believe it. It was just a statement. It was just this. Yeah, as, as you know, sure as you'll you wake up in the morning or sure as the sun will come up, you'll be all right. Yeah, I have all the faith in you in the world. And if you can find one person in your life that believes that about you, one, you're very lucky. And two, you got a maid. Um, if you, 
I know. If you can find that one person that, that really truly uh, feels that way by you and it can impart that in a way that doesn't seem like disingenuous or, 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 or them feeling like they have to tell you something in the moment to make you feel better, but it's just a deeply ingrained belief that they have. That was my That's, grandmother, you know, yeah. she, she very similar. She went, whenever I would be stressed in high school or college and I would call her, you know, she, she would literally just go, she would either say two things, exactly what your dad said, it's going to be fine. Or she would just say, well, you just do the best you can. And it was so interesting how to have somebody else give you that expression is the most freeing thing that somebody can yeah. give you is just and it's, it's funny, I have it written down in my studio now with some of these opportunities that have been coming my way. I'm so grateful for them. And then right after I hang up the phone, I go like, oh, shit, 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 shit. Like, what did I just say yes to? Like, I'm, I'm, I get terrified. And then I, sure. I play back that voice of her just going like, just do the best you can. And it wasn't like, a, I'm going to pacify him telling yeah. him this. It was like, you know, and then come to find out the, the older I got, the amount of things that she had been through that, you know, she had never spoken about, like, right. I want to say six or seven miscarriages where they were really far along and, you know, estranged from a sister and this and this. And so for her to go, it's, 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 it's going to be fine. You know, you, you do the best you can. It, it, every day it rings true. So yeah, absolutely. It was, it was a real pleasure to, to bring through your dad. I, his energy was just so was funny it was like strong slightly yes. reverent at times yeah. lovely so I'm, I'm very grateful good man and now it's time for some last minute questions if you were stuck as a ghost in a theater for all of eternity and you could only watch <laughs> if you could only watch one musical over and over what would it be oh god what's the shortest one um <laughs> right uh, Let's see. Oh, do I want catharsis or do I want um, color purple? Color purple mm. with, with Cynthia. It's the only show I've paid twice, house seats twice for. And I would, I would have done it. The, and the rest of that cast was spectacular. But, okay. but um, yeah, just blew me away. What about the shows that you've done? If you could rewatch one over and over of all the- La Boheme. No, did you do that with, um, I want to say yes. Did you do that with Patricia Phillips? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she, was, she was a guest not too long yeah. ago. She's, she's great. Awesome. She's, she's great. Awesome. That was the most beautiful show I've ever been a part of. And unique and special. And um, yeah, I would watch that. And the good thing is I got to watch it because I was double cast. My role was double cast. So I only had to do four shows a week. So I actually could come in and watch the show. Oh. Yeah. I guess other question for you, character that you've played that would benefit most from a medium? I mean, I would say Larry and Dear Evan Hansen because he's, he's dealing with the death of his son. So that's, that's pretty obvious. But I think also Javert probably needs a little bit of uh, uh, <laughs> comfort in his life. <laughs> Javert needs a hug. He needs, yeah, he, needs, he needs a hug. He needs a lot. You know, like when you, when you, I know, and I know it's so much deeper than it, but you're like, it was a loaf of bread, dude. Like, come yeah, man. on. Come like, on. Let's, we gotta, you know, we gotta, I remember Colin Wilkinson, when I saw him years ago, had made jokes about, you know, the obsession with bread and, you know, wondering like what else was going on that we're hunting someone down. For. Yeah. Like, Wait, uh, you're from, did you go up to Toronto to see Colm? All the time. That's yeah. when I, I was in that. That's yeah. So that's when you saw me. I was in Wait, that. In the Canadian in, one? 
in Les Mis in Toronto with Colm Wilkinson. Get out of here. Hundreds of years from now, when we're all no longer here physically, how would you want people to look back and, and remember Ben Davis? Yeah, the same way I talked about Marin. That, that, uh, that, you know, I'm not going to be as beneficent as Marin was. I mean, she had, don't, don't get me wrong, she, she, could, she could whip it out like, like it smack you across the face with something, but she was just a, this glowing orb of light. I've got a little more darkness, I think, in me, but I want people to feel good. And I want people to know that the people that are close to me, that they had a loyal friend and, and somebody who would do anything for them. That's all. That's great. Well, I, I cannot wait to cheer you on in some future projects or at the minimum, we will, we will allow our drones to meet one day. We'll go hike. Well, you'll bring yes. body and I will have my spouse bring uh, Boris. Ann is the name of his drone. That's and, amazing. Um, from our old facts of life episode that we love Cloris Leachman in our house yeah. and Cloris Leachman had some joke in one of the skits about being named after somebody named Anne. And she's like my grandfather, Boris. Anne. so we just kept it. So <laughs> Dottie, we will maybe not hike over and look, we'll find something a little more uh, moderate no. for me, but yeah. Yeah. No, that was a bitch. I don't need to do that again. No, I'm glad I did it, but no more. Yes. No. Well, thank you so much for your time, for being a guest today. And thank uh, you. Everyone at home, be well, and we'll see you for another episode of Stage Door Medium sometime soon. Bye-bye. Hi, everyone. I want to thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to learn more about mediumship, please feel free to check out my website, www.stagedoormedium.com where you can also sign up for my newsletter or book a reading for yourself. Feel free to check out my Instagram at Stage Door Medium or subscribe to my YouTube channel by the same name, Stage Door Medium. Thanks so much, be well, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.